Well, good morning. What a blessing it is to worship our great God and King with you this morning. As we look for God to speak to us through His Word, please open your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. If you are using the Pew Bibles in front of you, that's page 939. Our text will be um, chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. Once you've found your place there, please stand with me if you are able, out of respect for God as His Word is read to us this morning. Our text is verses 2 through 7, but I will read verses 1 through 7 this morning. God says this to us. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations." including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those who in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass fades and the flowers wither, but the word of our Lord will remain forever. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we we jumped into the proverbial deep end. And we began our exposition through the book of Romans. And now we will look to stay afloat for the next number of months as we wade through this letter of Paul to the church in Rome. Last week we looked at the author's credentials. The, the, the author Paul in the very first verse starts this letter by, by coming onto the scene and, and flashing his badge, if you will. He, he comes onto the scene and says, these are the things that make me suitable to write this letter to you. I'm a servant of of Christ Jesus. I'm called to be an apostle. I'm set apart for the gospel of God. This is why you ought to receive this letter that I'm writing to you favorably. And as we apply the text, we, we saw that we too, because we have a new identity in Christ, because we've been called by God to herald the word, our apostolic authority is the word, because we're called by God to bring the word and are set apart for the gospel of God, we too are properly credentialed. For the gospel ministry God calls us to. And now as we look beyond verse 1 into the next six verses of Romans chapter 1, Paul's going to unpack further this gospel that he is set apart for. And so I've entitled this sermon, as you see in your worship folder, For the Sake of His Name. For the sake of His Name. The main idea that we will consider from the text this morning is this. Because God is jealous for the renown of His own name, He declared the promise of His Son to save a people unto Himself. Because God is jealous for the renown of His own name, He declared the promise of His Son to save a people unto Himself. And you'll see there in your worship folder as well that we're going to operate under these four headings. The Gospel promise, the Gospel person, the Gospel purpose, and the Gospel people. 
We will see the gospel promise from verse 2, the gospel person from verses 3 and 4, the gospel purpose from verse 5, and the gospel people from verses 6 and 7. And so starting first with the gospel promise, verse 10, or verse 2 again, again reads like this, and I'll read verse 1D as well for context. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What's the best news that you have ever given someone? Maybe you remember back to, to your engagement, to, if you were married. Do you remember calling your friends and, and, and telling them the news? Or, or maybe phones didn't exist then. Do you, do you remember writing a letter to your family and friends and, and telling this, of, this news of this major life change? Or maybe uh, when you learned that your wife was pregnant, do you, do you remember calling your parents and giving them the good news that they are going to be grandparents very soon? Or, or maybe you got the, the college acceptance letter and were just elated to tell your friends where you were headed to school. Or maybe you got the, the promotion at, at work and as you're driving home, you're just exceedingly eager to communicate to your wife that the budget is not going to be as tight moving forward. Whatever the case may be, sharing good news is really one of the incredible joys of life. It's, it's one of the more underappreciated graces that we have today. Well, well, the Apostle Paul references here, the gospel that he references is good news. This, this is what gospel means. The Greek word euangelion literally means good news. First, it's news. It's message from God. We covered this last week. It's the gospel of God, the news of God. It has a divine origin, news that comes from above. But second, it's also news that is good. It's a message of glad tidings. It's news that offers eternal life. It's news that magnifies the eternally begotten Son. It's news that glorifies the unbegotten Father. It's news that shows the power of the Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's news of reconciliation and hope and grace and mercy. It's really good news. But Paul's point here in verse 2 is that even though this is good news... It is not new news. This isn't news that he is breaking. You know, when you, on the TV affiliates, they all compete, right? There's this, there's this uh, respect that comes, and there's this rush and the thrill that comes from being the one that, that breaks the news. You, you see the words uh, flash across your, your TV or the banner on your phone, breaking news. Just this week, breaking news, George Santos won't run for re-election following the ethics report. Or breaking news, there's complete phone and internet blackout in Gaza. Or if you're a sports fan, Adam Schefter is the guy with ESPN who always seems to be the one breaking the news. He's the guy you got to follow if you want the breaking sports news. So-and-so got traded, so-and-so just got a huge contract. Breaking news, Justin Fields is a terrible quarterback and the Chicago Bears are a sorry excuse for a football franchise. I might have made that one up. (laughs) Paul is highlighting here in verse 2 that this is not breaking news. This is news that was promised beforehand, the text says. Remember, we we mentioned last week that this is a mainly Gentile audience he's writing to. There are some Jews there as well. But these are folks that, that have either been raised in the Old Testament or are being trained in it. 
And Paul is saying, I didn't break this news. This is news that was promised beforehand. The good news that I'm going to unpack for you, the church in Rome. The good news that I'm going to unpack for you, especially theologically, is the same news that was promised in the Old Testament. You see, there were some men in the day that thought that Paul was preaching and teaching some innovative message. They thought he was advocating for some new trend that he'd kind of just conjured up. And so Paul writes here a bit polemically. Polemical meaning he's defending himself. He's arguing, listen, this isn't from me. This isn't some new fad. This is good news. It's the same good news that was promised in the very scriptures that you say I'm departing from. It's good news, but it isn't new news. In Isaiah chapter 46 You don't have to turn there, but this verse is particularly important for us this morning. I'm going to read verses 8 through 10 of chapter 46. It says this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And the ancient times things not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Did you hear verse 10? God declares the end from the beginning. He, he, he has declared the end result that will come. And that end result He declared, declared from the very beginning. The end result of, of Jesus Christ, his, his covenant and His kingdom, the everlasting reign of this kingdom is what God has declared. This is the end result. And it was declared from the very beginning. Paul is saying that what was promised beforehand in the Old Testament is the same thing I'm going to unpack for you in great detail as we work our way through this letter. I mentioned this verse last week, but let's turn there this morning. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, leading up to this, God creates the whole world in six days rests on the seventh day. The pinnacle of that creation is mankind. God places Adam and Eve in the garden, tells them to work it and to keep it. Tells them that they can eat of any tree in the garden except for the tree in the midst of the garden. Lest they touch it, the fruit of it, or they will surely die. They, of course, did not long abide in this honor. Satan using the subtlety of the serpent to subdue Eve. And then by seducing Adam, who without any compulsion, did willfully transgress the law of their creation and this command given to them to, eat, to not eat the forbidden fruit. Which then brings us to verse 14 of chapter 3 where God curses the serpent. It says this. Chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelium, or or the first announcement of the gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. His heel. This, this first announcement of the gospel declares that God's people will eventually triumph over the serpent. The, the seed of the woman here is, is a, as a collective noun signifying that this is a, a corporate triumphant. 
But we cannot win this battle on our own, can we? No, Jesus, Eve's perfect, undefiled seed, is delivered to give the final crushing blow. And if we are in Him, we share in this victory. This is the Gospel. This is the Gospel of God. This is the message of God. This was promised beforehand. This isn't Paul saying, hey, I'm breaking this news for you this morning, Roman church. No, rather this is a promise that is present in Genesis 3. It was promised to you beforehand. Let me just fly through some, some other texts rather quickly just to kind of show us that this has been God's plan all along. Deuteronomy 18.15 says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, Jesus, like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Psalm 22.16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. What does that sound like? Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, After 62 weeks, an appointed one, Jesus, shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Jeremiah 23, verse 6, In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which you will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ has always been the plan of God. And it was declared from the beginning. This was promised beforehand, Paul is saying. And there are two major implications, two major applications here from this verse. One, we have to acknowledge that this is not plan B. This is not plan B. Paul is announcing the gospel here in his epistle to Romans, but, but he's not breaking the news that God has somehow changed his mind and is calling some major audible and has now de- declared, well, Israel couldn't cut it, so now I'm going to save my people through Jesus. No. Paul is saying this has been God's plan all along. So the implication here is if this is true, which it is, means that when we read our Bibles, especially the Old Testament, we have to have these lenses on. We have to be looking for Christ in the pages of the Old Testament because as we will see under our next heading, the gospel is all about a person. The gospel is a person. And this gospel was declared in the form of a promise in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 3. And it's declared onward. As history progresses, the shadow of this promise begins to fade away and the substance becomes more and more clear. And then eventually that the promise is fulfilled in Christ in the new covenant. But this is not plan B. This is a gospel promise that is rooted in the covenant of redemption. The, the covenant of redemption is, is a covenant made within the Godhead in eternity past. A covenant between the Father and the Son and the Spirit to send the, the Son in the power of the Spirit to seek and save a lost people unto Himself. Listen to Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it is the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. They shall prolong his days. For the will of the Lord has, shall prosper in this land. Out of this anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, listen to this, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Shall the righteous one, my servant, 
make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is the, this is the old covenant that this promise is made. This is a gospel that was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Second major implication here is, as Isaiah just said, through the righteous one, my servant, shall many be accounted as righteous. Brethren, there's only one way to be saved. There's only one pathway to heaven. It has always been being clothed with the righteousness of Christ and receiving that robe by faith in him. It takes righteousness to get to heaven. It takes pure, holy, perfect righteousness. Let that sink in for a minute. What do we quickly realize? Well, we quickly realize that Adam wasn't righteous. Abraham wasn't righteous. Moses, David, they weren't righteous. And brethren, neither are you. Neither am I. But for those who place their faith in Christ... They receive His righteousness imputed to them and are justified before God and accounted as righteous in His sight through Christ and are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, including eternal life. But this has always been the pathway to salvation. This pathway has been the pathway to salvation for Israel. Israel was not saved on the basis of being ethnic Israel. We just read in Isaiah, it is through justification. So many of God's chosen people in the Old Covenant, Israel, will be in heaven, but not on the basis of their ethnicity. Rather, on their basis of their faith in a coming Messiah. We have a great need for Christ. Everyone has a great need for Christ. And we have a great Christ for our need, brethren. But this wasn't just a new covenant promise. This was indeed just as much true in the old covenant as it is for us in the life of Israel. The saints of the Old Testament were saved through justification by faith just like we are. They just believed in the promise of a coming Messiah. And then once the fulfillment came and Christ died on the cross in time and space in Calvary 33 A.D., And three days later rose again and ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. The benefits then of the life and death and resurrection of Christ were retroactively applied to those that had faith in the promise as it's being fulfilled on earth. That has major implications for how we read our Bibles. If nothing else, it means that we should be asking the question, no matter what page we are on from Genesis to Revelation, where am I at in redemptive history? Where am I at in the plan for Jesus to save a people unto himself? All this to say this is good news, but this is not new news. This is news that was promised beforehand. It was promised to our forefathers. It was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures, Paul says. This is the gospel promise. Which brings us then to the gospel person. Verses 3 and 4 again read like this. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
concerning his son who was a descendant from David according to the flesh. Jesus, God's eternally begotten son, descended from David according to the flesh. What is Paul doing here? What is he seeking to show the church in Rome by saying this? This is a huge statement. If the right people are in his hearing and he were to say this, they'd pick up stones to kill him. And so by saying this, Paul is is further cementing the idea that we just mentioned. He's saying David wasn't the point. The king that was needed ultimately wasn't David, but Christ. The son who was in the line of David. This is the covenant king who needed to come. And again, this has been God's plan all along. But notice here also the the, the rich theology woven into this verse. And, And we really get this emphasis of Paul by understanding the phrase, according to the flesh. According to the flesh. What is the significance of this? Essentially what what Paul is doing here in verse 3 is affirming both the divinity and the humanity of Christ. Contrary to to things in the day like docetism who who claimed that, that Jesus wasn't fully human, rather he just simply appeared to be human. This is what some people thought. He he didn't actually have a, a human body, he just seemed to, or just merely appeared, and, and that is heresy. To, to, to deny the true humanity of Christ is to deny the Christian faith. Second John 1.7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And so Paul is clear here when he is saying that Jesus descended from the line of David according to the flesh. You see, man is basic dichotomy. Man is made up of two parts, body and soul. That's what you have, body and soul. And Jesus, as the descendant of David according to the flesh, he took on human nature. The Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. He was made like us in every respect, the author of Hebrews tells us. He took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. In other words, with a human nature. Both a body and a soul and not just simply the appearance thereof. But Paul also affirms that that Jesus is the Son. The eternally begotten Son. We talked about this in, in Sunday school this morning with regard to the eternal relations of origin. And, and again, we talked about that last week. Eternal relations of origin can sound sophisticated, but, but really it is, it is quite simple. This is how the church has confessed down through the ages who God is in terms of the relations within the Godhead. We, we confess, much like the Nicene Creed did from the early church, that the Father is unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. And so who Paul is referencing here is the Son the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who is of divine nature and human nature. Fully God, fully man. Truly God and truly man. This is what theologians call the the hypostatic union, the the unification of the divine nature and the human nature of Christ. And we can distinguish between these two natures. It's often very important for us to do so. But we can never truly separate them. And so Paul is making the claim quite clear in here from verse 3, the reality of the God-man, Christ Jesus. Which brings us to verse 4 then. It says this again, this Jesus 
was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of his holiness by his, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In many ways, the resurrection from the dead was what declared or demonstrated Jesus to be the Son of God with power. The victory over sin was being displayed and therefore the risen one is distinguished as the one with sovereign power. Rob Ventura, commentator, his comments are helpful here. He says this, The resurrection was the pivotal point which marked the end of Jesus' humiliation on earth and initiated the beginning of his exaltation and glory. The resurrection, according to Paul here, was the moment, and we have to catch this, the resurrection was the moment when the promise that was declared beforehand became fulfillment in their presence. And so again, anyone receiving this letter who is aware of the Old Testament Scriptures, Paul continues to, to draw their mind back to the reality that, that nothing has changed. That the same Jesus that was promised fulfilled the promise of the Gospel. So what Paul is doing here is he's really making the claim that the Gospel is more of a who than a what. The Gospel person is Jesus Christ our Lord. And even as we break Jesus, the name of Jesus down, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means the Lord is salvation. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah, which means appointed one or promised or sent one. And the Lord obviously designates the person that is a sovereign master. And so even in his name, Jesus Christ our Lord, Essentially, this means sovereign master, the promised one, appointed to save. Clearly indicating the gospel as a person. We've considered the gospel promise, the gospel person. Let us turn attention now to verse 5 as we consider the gospel purpose. Verse 5 again reads like this. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. When Paul says we here in, in verse 5, he's referring to believers, to, to Christians, those who are united to Christ. He includes himself here, and, and you are included. I am included if we are in Christ this morning. Paul says, we have received grace and apostleship. In other words, we have received salvation and calling. And notice here he says received and not earned. Brethren, we do not earn our salvation, we receive it. Children, look up here for a minute, if you will. Christianity is not something you earn. Your mom and dad are not here because they are good people this morning who have earned the right to be here. There is no way for us to earn our salvation. It is impossible for us. Whether you will go to heaven is not dependent upon you being as good a person as you can be. Do you know what the Bible calls us trying to do good things in order to earn something? It calls them filthy rags. Filthy rags. Like when you, you spill your, your milk at dinner and your mom grabs a rag to, sp to, to wipe it up. 
What is the rag full of? It's full of the milk, the, the crumbs, or whatever else is on the table. That's how God views our good works. And so, when your mom or your dad or your Sunday school teacher, when, when they tell you to obey God, they're not telling you to obey God so that you can earn your right to be in relationship with God. As if God is, is com- keeping some sort of tally on you. Christianity, our faith, is not a works-based salvation. That, that is not what Paul is referencing here. It is of grace. And it is grace that is received. We affirm that it is by grace we have been saved. And this salvation is a gift given to us. We receive it. We receive it by believing in Jesus. Ephesians tells us that it's a grace, a gift of grace given to us so that we might not boast. My grandfather passed away this year. Uh, I was close with him growing up. He was very influential in my life. I called him Bapa. I couldn't say uh, Grandma or Grandpa when I was little, and so I called my grandparents Boppy and Bapa. Well, Bapa had this sign in his den where he would watch television, and it was a, a big en- engraved piece of wood, and it just said grace. And one day I remember, uh, like it was yesterday, we were in the den watching TV together, and he shuts the TV off in the middle of the program, and I'm like, what are you doing? He looks at me and he says, you see that sign up there? It's like, yeah, I see it. I, I thought we were watching TV. He said, that's the best word in the English language. And in his own simple way, he began to tell me about how grace is what we receive, even though we don't deserve it. That, that if we believe in Jesus, we receive pardon and peace and hope and deliverance from the wrath of God and, and joy and eternal life. If we repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ and receive the gift of grace given to us by God Himself, we will be saved. He then went on to tell me that then what salvation produces is good works. You see, we're not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. Remember Paul, he he said we received grace and apostleship. We received salvation and a calling. And that calling is to take the gospel to the nations in our unique ways. This is the good works that we are enabled to do as we are now saved by grace. This is what an apostle does. And and like we said last week, we might not all be apostles. None of us are apostles. That that office no longer exists. But that doesn't mean that calling, in, in the general sense, whatever God is calling us to, doesn't exist. We've been saved by grace for good works. We're not called to withhold the salvation we have received, but to proclaim it. That's what Christians do. That's what an apostle does. They receive grace and apostleship. They receive salvation and a calling to make disciples. And so the gospel came to your soul, came to you by grace. You received it, not to conceal it, but to communicate it. Not to keep, but to convey Not to disguise, but to display. Not to be shy, but to shout. Christians shouldn't dread to share what we have received. We should delight in sharing what we have received. It's the best news we have ever been told, and it's the best news that we could ever bring someone. But do we? Do I? 
do we? These things go hand in hand in the mind of Paul. Grace and apostleship. Salvation and calling. So does Covenant Community Church harbor the gospel or do we herald the gospel? And why? Why do we want to be a church that proclaims the gospel that we have received? Well, it says right there in the text in verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. For the sake of his name. This is the chief reason why God promised the gospel beforehand. It's the chief reason why Jesus was sent to be born of David according to the flesh. The chief reason why Jesus was declared. The chief reason why you were given the gift of faith and a calling to make disciples. Why? For the sake of his name. Our main idea this morning, because God is jealous for the renown of his own name, he declared the promise of his son to save a people unto himself for the sake of his name. God desires nothing more than his own glory. And listen, there is nothing more pure, there's nothing more holy, there's nothing more right in all of existence than for our own God to be jealous for the renown of his own name. That isn't selfish, that isn't weird, that's not strange, that's not off or greedy or egotistical. Nothing could be more pure and right than for God, the one true God, to be jealous for His own glory. As He is the pure and holy and glorious, righteous one. And so, in an act of maintaining that purity and holiness and glory, He longs for Himself to be made much of. God never does anything ultimately for a different reason, brethren. For the sake of his name. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. And that is good news for us. That is really good news for us because it would be terrible for him to do it for any other reason. He would cease to be God. And I want to be clear that when I say jealous, I mean in whatever sense that the Bible declares him to be a jealous God. And that, of course, is, is accommodating language. He's, he's not jealous as we can often be bitter and envious and covet someone or something else. But rather jealous in the terms of, of a holy commitment unto himself. Which is something pure and holy. It's what something who is pure and holy, that's something that they would do in order to maintain their purity and holiness. God is immutable, like we talked about in Sunday school this morning, and so he doesn't ebb and flow, and some days he's jealous for his own glory, and some days he isn't. No, he's, he's always committed wholly to the renown of his own name. This is the gospel purpose. This is why he declared the promise of his son to save a people unto himself for the sake of his name. Which brings us then to the, to the final heading as we close. We've considered the gospel promise, the gospel person, the gospel purpose. Let's now consider finally the, the gospel people from verses 6 and 7. They read like this. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, here Paul is addressing believers. 
He's writing specifically to those who are saints, to those who are loved by God, to those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is not everyone's calling. Not everyone is a saint. Not everyone belongs to Jesus. Not everyone is loved by God. Yes, there's a sense in which God loves everyone in, in common grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And so there's a sense in which God, everything he does is loving. But, but the manifestation of love that is shown here to believers is unique. And it's not true of everyone. The, the church is loved by God. The people of God are loved by God. John Murray says that the church is, is the bosom of God's affections. And so the people who belong to Jesus in Rome... Paul gives them these warm introductory blessings. And brethren, we need to hear this blessing this morning. As people who belong to Jesus, have we considered the magnitude of that reality? Have you pondered the depths of belonging to Jesus lately? Have you contemplated the practical implications of this truth in any recent day? You belong to Jesus. You are firm in his care. Are you confident? Are you firm and confident in your sense of belonging? Does this this certainty overwhelm your soul with unspeakable joy? You, You belong to Jesus. I know many of us may struggle with our sense of belonging in this world in many different contexts. We might not feel like we belong at school. We might not feel like we belong in a certain group of friends. Everyone is just so much smarter than I am. I just, they're so quick and witty, I need to chew on things. Or maybe someone, the group of friends you're in, they just seem so extroverted. I need downtime. I just don't fit in. I don't feel like I belong to this crowd. Maybe you feel like you don't even belong in your own family. My siblings are just so different than me. Everyone's so athletic. I am not. My children are more like my husband. My children are more like my wife. I feel like I just don't even belong. My parents don't get me. Or maybe even some of us are feeling like we're wondering if we even belong here in this church. People have different convictions than I do. Do I even belong? People seem to think so much differently than I do. Do I even belong? I think we all struggle to some degree with our sense of belonging in this world in the different contexts that God has placed us in. But I want to encourage you this morning, brethren, in the most pastoral way I know how, brethren, you belong to Jesus Christ. You fit, you belong in the most significant relational context in the history of the created order. And you couldn't belong more perfectly than you do. Because Jesus is why you belong. You belong to the King. You belong because God called you, pulled you out of the muck and the mire and said, Mine! regenerated your soul, granted you the gift of faith, adopted you into his family. Ephesians 1, 5-6, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with in the beloved. 
Paul here is reminding the church that they belong to Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he, he gives them two extremely important reminders of blessing. Grace and peace. You are a recipient of all the undeserved spiritual blessings. Grace. And you have complete vertical rest with God in Christ. Peace. You have complete vertical peace with God, and that doesn't necessarily translate to complete horizontal peace here on earth. It will in glory, but until then, we have hope. We have hope that gives us this inner serenity that even though life is full of chaos and turmoil, there will never be absence of turmoil in this life in the context that God has called us to. It's important for us to acknowledge that. Paul's desire for these people is that there would be an inner contentment of deep-rooted joy even in the midst of the turmoil. And this only comes from God. Verse 7 again, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't something we can muster up. We are wholly dependent upon God to grant us this grace and this peace. But might He do just that? Might He grant it to you? Might He grant it to me? Might He grant it to us, the gospel people? Let's pray.